0: Hey guys, this is Ian here from the Adventure Geeks podcast. How are, how's everyone doing today in this uh, fine Sunday morning? So, as I mentioned a few days ago in our last episode, that I was going to do a special one of my special history episodes about the uh, Russian Revolution of 1917. And I wanted to pick the Russian Revolution because October was the anniversary of the, I guess, final revolution in the Re- russian empire and it kind of holds a special place in my heart as, as i told everyone i'm a big fan of the historic th- this period of history in uh the world speci- specifically uh world War one uh, turn of the okay. century of the 19th century just because there's a lot of uh, issues that still plague us from the first world war and its aftermath into today which i could always talk about in another episode but uh yeah so this is my first uh official full length history podcast episode so i'm going to take it as a sort of a testing ground so if anyone has any uh, uh opinions or you know suggestions for me in the future with this please by all means please give me a, a holler back in our adventure geeks adventure geeks podcast but uh yeah here we go and uh, enjoy the ride so i think the best way to go through with this is have a general overview of what occurs in 1917 for russia and adds i'll go back a little bit to give people some the general reader a background overview on the uh, russian empire and what was going on around this time period so for i guess anyone who's taken a general world history class or a u.s history class i'll just give a, a quick recap so in uh, 1917 russia it, the russian empire under their um, form of monarchy the czar which i believe is a uh, Russian for Caesar, if memory serves me best, and I, I look up the uh, origins for this. So the Tsar right now is basically the king of uh, the Russian Empire, and he's got more power than uh, the king of England at the time, which was under a constitutional monarchy. And I think this is more like an absolute monarchy, what the Tsar says goes. And right now the Tsar un- for uh, the Russian Empire is... Nicholas II, who took over from his father Alexander III in 1894 when his father died and officially became the Tsar in 1895. So right now, the Russian Empire is about 175 million subjects of the Tsar. It's the largest, uh, I guess, governing body at the time, landmass at the time in uh, the world. It stretches from uh, Vladivostok on the... uh, eastern side of the Russian Empire past Siberia it takes Siberia. And it also incorporates most of the uh, Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. It incorporates most of Poland at the time, which is modern day Poland, uh, the Ukraine, uh, Belarus, a lot of the countries on its southern, uh, southern, Middle Eastern Asian border as well, including Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and the like. So it's about 175 million strong. And I guess the best way to describe Russia at this time is a giant with a, a big great power with many issues. Uh there was uh, in 1905, Russia had the Russian Empire had lost a war with the Japanese and the Russo-Japanese War. It cost a lot of uh, casualties and prestige in the Russian Empire with the Tsar. The thought of a Western uh, nation being destroyed by a rising Eastern power was, I guess, unheard of at the time. And uh, I don't have to mention to people that, from our perspective, there's a lot of uh, racism going on in this time. And in some ways, racism is still happening, unfortunately, here. But uh, I just want to give people the general overview of what was going on. So... Uh, the Tsar had to Nicholas II had to deal with the fallout from the Russo-Japanese War, and then he also had to deal with the fallout from a revolution of sorts in 1905, where it became in the capital of St. Petersburg, which is on the uh, Baltic Baltic Sea coast, a uh, labor movement for you know better wages and uh, more fi- for better wages and a little more more freedom from the uh, Tsar... The Tsar regime ended in a bloodbath, which is called, Bloody, which now known as Bloody Sunday, in nineteen o five. So there was a lot of civil unrest at the time, and in order for the Tsar to quell the unrest, he had to form what was called a uh, Duma, which was basically Russia's version of a uh, national assembly. Which I would sort of makes I would sort of see as the uh, sort of a Congress. As a, a, well, for for any American uh, viewers, uh, so he had to share power with this former civilian government the duma uh didn't it sit well it didn't sit well with him he didn't appreciate he didn't want any of his uh authoritative power to be lost and also members of the duma were unhappy because while they had uh they were able to i don't know bring changes into the government if the czar didn't appreciate any of these changes he could just simply dissolve the duma so it was like a step in the direction for democracy, but also a step backwards. So it was a situation that pleased nobody. But uh, going about 10 years into the future, Russia, for the most part, is becoming more stable through various reforms. And many of the ministers of the time decided that if Russia can continue this reform in the ne- for the next 20 years or so, it would be on par with many of its other uh European neighbors as well, including Germany, Imperial Germany at the time, and the British Empire, and the French Empire at the time as well. Unfortunately, as I think everyone gets in uh, old History, the events of July 1914 do not uh, grant Russia that time for peace and prosperity. So, in uh, July 1914, the uh, Archduke of uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Francis Ferdinand, is gunned down by a Serbian nationalist in Sarajevo. And uh the austro-hungarian empire uses this uh event as a reason to take over the kingdom of serbia which was the I guess, biggest uh slavic nation facing the serbian facing the austro-hungarian empire in that part of um the eastern europe and the balkans at the time and because uh russia had ties to serbia through uh, Slavic ties to Serbia and had an alliance with um, France at England at the time. Uh, snowball effect is the creation of the first the creation of the uh, the first world war, which will pit the Russian Empire with their allies, uh, Britain and France, as the major Allied powers against uh, the their enemies, which we call the Central Powers, against uh, Germany. The Austro-Hungarian Empire and uh, later in the year the Ottoman Empire, which is now modern-day Turkey, and faced Russia on the uh, Balkan and uh, Middle Eastern portion of its empire. So three years, we'll jump a little bit, two and two and a half years into the future, uh, the war hasn't gone exactly great for Russia or any of the uh, any of the other powers right now. I would I would say it's most of a most of a standstill in the late 1916, early 1917. The uh, Russian Empire is going to form a field army of about uh, 12 million men and women mobilized in the armed forces. About uh, by the end of in uh, early 1918, when officially the war is ended with them, about uh, close to two million will be dead, Uh, five million will be wounded, and uh, five million will be wounded and uh, two. Two and a half million more as casualties are missing. So almost like a 75% uh, uh, casualty rate for the entire Russian Armed Forces. But at the time in 1917, the army is actually doing better than what uh, a lot of, I think, contemporaries would would suggest. Uh, they've gotten help from the uh, Western powers with munitions and equipment, and also they've been building their industrial base to fight the, the war against Germany. So I think 1917, the army is actually doing a good job Holding the line, it is the home front that is going to cause a lot of chaos and um, tragedy for the Russian uh, Empire and the Tsar. In 1917, the Tsar is not in St. Petersburg, which is the capital, and is going to be called Petrograd from the start of the war until its continue until its uh, ending, in order to sound more of a uh, Russian, uh, Russian patriotic name. So, Tsar Nicholas II is at the front commanding the army, with the idea that. Uh, if troops see him as commanding the army, they'll see him as one of them and sort of increase the morale in the army. The only problem is this also takes him away from the day-to-day affairs of the imperial capital with day-to-day events being run by various members of the ministry. And uh, a big problem for me, which which I read in my World War One and Russian Revolution books, is that he gets a lot of his information from his wife, Alexandria. And uh, Alexandria is not a huge fan of the Duma or any form of... Um, Soviet government sharing power with the czar, so her words to him are going to be extremely, uh, I guess, biased. Is probably the best way to describe it. And because he's not in the capital at the time, he is unable to really, I guess, uh, take control of events that happen in 1917. So uh, February in 1917 is what we will later be called the February Revolution, which occurs in Petrograd. During uh I think the first snowball effect happens around February twenty third, which was International Women's Day for in the labor movement. So people came out and were demonstrating against the government, uh, peaceful at first. Uh, the major problems were with uh, high inflation and uh, wages not being kept up with those uh with the inflation in the in the civilian market, and I've heard different things from different sources. The general idea was that. There was massive amounts of food shortages in the city, which caused a big reason why the revolution occurred, as it did. And I'm currently reading the Sean Meakin's book on the Russian Revolution. And Sean Meekin is a uh, history professor at uh, Baird College. Actually, it's one of the more recent books on the Russian Revolution, created in 2000, written in 2017. And he painted a picture of the food shortages not being as great as people made it out to be, but... I guess, significant enough that people will be demonstrating. And uh, I think the best way to describe that for any, I guess, civil unrest is uh, when your people's wallets are being hurt and they can't feed their families or provide a decent loan for their families. That's when things really start to come to a head. So, uh, it's a little complicated with the February Revolution. I guess the best way to describe it in a general sense is that as the... uh, I guess the workers, various civilians start striking against the government in recognition of these high inflation, you know, to increase better wages and get rid of the inflation, Uh, the monarchy decides to, you know, they have orders to they give orders to their troops in Petrograd to crush these civilian unrest by means means necessary, but there's a lot of problems with the army troops garrison troops in the city at the time, uh, according to meekin, there were about one hundred and troop, sixty troops sixty thousand troops in the city at the time living in barracks that could accommodate at best thirty to forty thousand uh, soldiers so you got soldiers being crammed in the barracks they're feeling the same effect they 're not exactly happy with the situation. The situation uh, as the civilians are so instead of firing on the civilians a lot of troops start to side with the rioters and protesters so there's a lot of uh, civilian so civil unrest in the city and the Tsar is not there to um uh, to uh t- take charge at best and uh you know as of course nicholas ii uh, hears about this in the front so he goes tries to go back to the city to uh to handle things, but he cannot take the, he doesn't take the direct line. And I believe he was afraid of, uh, disloyal troops blocking the, blocking the, uh, the railways back to, uh, Russia, back to the the capital. So instead he takes a more circular route to the capital, but that doesn't get him into the, uh, city at the time to maybe if he had, a, if he was personally there, maybe it would have been able to, uh, take charge more, but instead it's left to, uh, his wife, Alexandria and, uh, most of these civilian uh, ministers and alexandria is a bit out of touch with uh best way to describe her is a bit out of touch with reality i, th- I think she feels that um uh, as long as they flex their muscles to the uh, civilians they'll show that the czar's rule is still is still uh, paramount and i think the civilian ministers in the duma at the time and the uh, the government they see more as well you know maybe uh the Tsar needs to step down, because if people see the Tsar as the, the problem, if he can step down and maybe impose his son there, Al- Alexei, his uh, 12, 13-year-old son at the time, Alexei, maybe it will uh, it will uh, quell civilian unrest and also grant the uh, civilian government more power in the Duma. The um, uh, best way to describe it is basically a, a Game of Thrones power play, so to speak. The uh, Duma believes that if they can do this, they can get more power from the civilian government, to themselves from the Tsar, and it will benefit them in the future. So the Tsar's train uh, is actually stopped before he gets to uh, Petrograd, and uh, a few of the ministers come to the czar, the czar's military train, and says, "Look, Tsar Nicholas, the uh, civilians aren't really going; they won't follow your word anymore. I think the best way to preserve the monarchy and preserve the uh, integrity of the government is for you, you to step down." And have your son come into play. That is a that is something we can all agree on. And uh, Nicholas II doesn't really want his son to be in in, in any sort of uh, sort of position of power. Even though the uh, personal, the uh, civilian government says that uh, if just Tsar is the, is in the power, if your son is takes over, then your brother Mikhail can be the regent. His uh, older brother Mikhail, his uh, brother Mikhail, who was the uh, grand, another grand duke at the time. But uh, the czar doesn't want to do that because, uh, for the last ever since he was born, Alexei has suffered from a form of uh, hemophilia, which, if anyone knows, it's a uh, it's when the blood the blood cannot clot any wounds in the in the uh, the body. So he has a the victim has a. Good chance of uh, bleeding to death over a simple wound and simple wound or cut, Bruce. and over several years in Alexei's life, he has uh, been close to death because of this. And the Tsar is extremely afraid of all the stress of uh, rule will uh, will not allow. Will, you know, will will negatively harm the. Alexei's abil- health and i think at this point the Tsar is thinking less of being a Tsar and thinking more of being a father to uh, his son so he decides he's not going to allow his son to be the Tsar uh, of russia and he instead says he will abdicate and let his brother mikhail be the le- leading this is the czar leading figure of uh of the russian empire and this was not exactly a uh traditional this wasn't this didn't happen in tradition this wasn't a uh, the way things were in in the rush in the czarist Tsar- Russian regime, you were supposed to give power to your immediate male heir, and this was established back in uh, the early eighteen hundreds under the Tsar under the Paul after his uh, falling out he had with his uh, previous was ruler of the Russian Empire, Catherine the Great. But he does that, and he tells his brother that you need to be the um, the czar in charge, and Mikhail. Wisely or unwisely, depending who you ask, decides not. He knows that basically the the czarist government is like the the monarchy is dissolved, and there's he doesn't want to be. Uh, I, I guess the way to describe it is he doesn't want to be the captain of the Titanic, where yeah you were the um, in charge of one of the greatest governments in the world, but it's about to fall. It's about to fall uh, apart, and uh, he doesn't want to be in charge of that. He doesn't want to be in charge of a sinking ship. Which I, personally I understand. Like that would I don't think most people would accept that role. So Mikhail decides he was not going to take charge of the, uh, he's not going to take charge of the monarchy, and it dissolves. And uh, basically, when the Tsar Nicholas abdicates, it is the end of the Tsarist regime under the Romanov family. Basically, the monarchy is dissolved on uh, March fifteenth, nineteen seventeen, thus ending a three hundred plus year dynasty of the Romanov rule since the, sixth, since the 17th century. So, uh, that brings us to uh, March and April of uh, 1917, and it ushers in a uh, sort of a democratic form of government in the Russian Empire under the provisional government, which is fostered from the remains of the ministers under uh, Nicholas II and the Duma, which was the National Assembly, as I talked about earlier, with various civilian lawyers and officials. So they take charge, but they also have a problem. Uh, the war is still going on in Russia, on the uh, the front between Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They want to show that they're still willing to fight for the uh, for the Allies, uphold their commitment, and uh, at this point, I. I I can understand they lost a lot of men, men, women, resources, and materials, and land. So if they just end the war now, there there was nothing to be gained by it. But uh, they also have a problem with civilian unrest as well. There's still shortages in. There's still shortages of, um, I guess, food and inflation in this, the capital Petrograd, which is going to be the, a major issue in the next in the next few months and the uh government doesn't share total power with themselves they have to share power with the petrograd soviets which is best way to describe it is basically a workers and soldiers council i don't know if you can want to call it like a labor union or just like a, a group of uh like ranking uh workers and, and soldier officials but they have to share power with that and that's going to be a problem for them they can't really do anything without the approval of the the petrograd soviets so they don't have total control and they also have a problem with um the uh, bolsheviks which i think most people know what know the word bolshevik these days uh, it was this bolshevik was the minority party of the a split between the one of the leading uh parties at the time the social democratic labor party they had a split with the majority in uh, 1903 and uh, one of the most vocal voices of the uh, Bolsheviks at this time is uh, Vladimir Lenin, who is currently in exile in Switzerland during the beginning and halfway through the war. But um, his position and his, his, uh, his position throughout the war is to immediately end war, immediately have Russia end the war. And, you know. And have told power go to the uh, his Bolshevik Party, which uh, catches the eye of the uh, German Empire, which Imperial Germany, which is fighting the Russians at this time. So they actually arrange passage for him through Switzerland, through Germany, and into uh, uh fin in neutral Finland at the time. Which yeah, neutral Finland. Sorry, I'm trying to get my thoughts. But basically, allows him and his followers to uh, come into. Russia as under the pretext of uh, you know ending the war with ending the war and saving Russian lives and various other reasons so the Duma the provisional, the provisional government has to deal with that there are several leading ministers in uh, the provisional government and I think the biggest one you want to pay attention to is uh, the uh, Social Democratic ah uh, social democrat uh leading to my lawyer and figure alexander kerensky that's going to be a major he's going to be one of the major heads of the provisional government between now and its fall in october of 1917 so kerensky has to on the one hand stabilize the government which is, is tough in any in any uh government turnover on the other hand, and also keep the uh, Russian Empire fighting in the fighting in the war, and they have various operations which they want to take over uh, Turkish or Ottoman territory in the south, and also continue fighting the Austro-Hungarians into uh, into their territory. So he also has to show that to the Allies that they're still strong and they still they'll still commit to their uh, end of end of the alliance, which. Uh, I don't want to give you too much like mon- I don't want to like uh, confuse anyone with like monetary issues, but uh, the Western Allies have been getting a lot of money and materials into the Russian Empire since the beginning of the war. So, yeah, Kerensky he's in a bit of a bind, and he feels one of the best ways to uh, bring the Russian Empire, the Russian army, people together is to have an offensive against the Austro-Hungarians. They seem as the weaker of the two to to have uh, major powers against the russians so it thinks that a lot an offense a military offensive against them will bolster the morale and the legitimacy of the provisional government and quell any um, agitators in the uh, petrograd which right now is the uh, soviet the members of the uh, soviet council and also the uh, growing voice in the bolsheviks and uh, bolsheviks right now they're they're maybe a minority party, but they're also very good at uh, using propaganda to uh, disseminate dissent and uh, agitation in the Russian army. They've been sending feelers into various units. They've been sending feelers into the city saying we need to end the war now, get rid of the imperialist uh, provisional governments. We know what is is best for the Russian for the uh, Russian R- average uh, Russian citizen and also come to a head later when. Uh, because a big reason that Lenin is able to do this fund is fund this because he was given a lot of money by the imperial germany to foster dissent into the uh russian citizenry so that'll come to h- later in july but we'll, we'll get there very very shortly all right so guys in uh, mid june 1917 the russian army launches a military offensive Against the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the region of Galicia, which is best best to say like southeastern um, portions of Poland and a bit of the Ukraine. Modern day U- uh, Ukraine. I'm pretty sure my geography is pretty good. And uh, they make initial head success in the first couple of days against the Austro-Hungary, uh, but then the offensive bogs down. Uh, more and more soldiers are are refusing to advance and. Part of this is to do with um, the Bolshevik agitators. Part of this is the uh, uneasy lull that has occurred on the uh, on the on the front. Uh, there has been little enemy activity for the past several months, and the German philosophy was that uh, we will let Lenin and his uh, agitators take out the home front. We'll stay back, and that they should be able to take it like end the war for us. So the offensive kind of runs to hold after a few days. Uh, casualties start to mount, and then the Austrians and the Germans actually launch a counterattack. Which heavy losses on both sides, but it basically brings the Russian army back to its starting point. So it's not a death blow to the provisional government yet, but it is a serious. Um, it does give a serious morale problem in the Russian army and at the home front. So let's try to stabilize. Yeah, to stabilize the front, um, Kerensky goes and you know looks at and tries to personally get himself involved in the um, armed forces. That uh, helps a little bit, but he's not a military man, so there's no, <laughs> there's no, no, so there should be actually no reason why why he's there. But um, yeah, and around this time, this is about where uh, Lenin decides that now is the time to um, usurp power from the original government and have the um, and take the cap and take the capital. So I do a brief synopsis of the July of crisis of the July affair in 1917. And best what he describe it is Lenin and uh, his, his radical, Bolsh- his radical Bolshevik faction trying to take power from the original government. Uh, it doesn't go quite as Lenin hopes. There's still not a lot of uh, support for his, his radical section of the Bolshevik party to, uh, take over the war, and also it comes to light in within the government that uh, Lenin has received a lot of support from the Germans, the uh, German the uh, from the Imperial Germany, because remember he was allowed safe patches through Germany, and he's been given a, a lot of money to stall increase agitation in the in the government. So he's denounced as a traitor by members of the provisional government as selling selling. Russia out to the enemy, and of course, you know, uh, Lenin and many of his followers call this uh, fake news for the day, but uh, it, it works because he ends up leaving to go to uh, temporary exile in Finland to escape from being arrested, and a lot of his uh, fellow followers are actually arrested by the original government. So it's one crisis averted. They, uh, but the, the Kerensky and the personal government sort of shoot themselves in the shoot themselves in the foot at this point uh they still i guess they're having trouble they're having trouble establishing support with themselves in the army uh right now the military district the military forces around the petrograd area under the command of a man named kurnivalov and he's got a lot of support in the upper army and from what i gathered so so support with the rank and file troops some see him as a imperialist, but because he had risen from the ranks, a lot of them see him as uh, one one of their own who had risen up and, you know, has Russia's Russia's interests at heart. But uh, Kerensky doesn't exactly trust Konevolov or a lot of the members of the Russian army at this point. He is afraid of a military coup, the way things are going for his government. So, uh, in a long story short, he ends up... uh, Having Kernevelov resign from the position of the milit- uh, as military commander around Petrograd, uh, there's a little bit of an affair with uh, between Kernevelov, Kerensky, and a former minister of the government by name, name of, uh, Lvov. And Lvov, was acting on his own, he had no position. He, he fell out of favor with uh, with Kerensky's, Kerensky's fo- him, Kerensky and his followers. He, uh, the way I read it from McKeekin's book, is he shows up. At uh, Knyazhov's headquarters, and says, "You know, the uh, we've been ta- this talking to the government, and a military uh, one of the options to save the government is if Russia to have a military uh, dictatorship or military rule to you." So Knyazhov writes a letter to uh, Kerensky saying, I-, "I heard what you were saying from Lvo- Lvov, or, and I I will be more than ha- I will I will um you know take command, overall command of the government if need be." And Kerensky freaks out about this. He res- he has uh, a resign, and Knyazhov realizes it's a mistake, but. By then, it's too late. But both men are kind of disgraced about about this uh, by this incident. So having Kornilov resign does cause a lot of dissatisfaction within the army, the upper army uh, command against the provisional government. So Kerensky loses a lot of followers in the army because of this. And in order to instill more support and legitimacy with his government, uh, from what I gathered, Kerensky sort of pardons a lot of the Bolshevik agitators that he had, that they had thrown in jail the month, several weeks earlier and installs them back into the, uh, Petrograd, uh, civilian political arena. And I believe his hope was that by showing some sort of mercy or clemency to the Bolsheviks, that they would work with the provisional government and, uh, share power. Uh, this does not go as planned. Um, the provisional government under Kerensky doesn't really do a great job of curtailing the Bolshevik agitators from, you know, proclaiming "Down with the war!" and uh, and by all means necessary. So basically, uh, they gather. In the long story short, they gather more—not necessarily a majority of support—but they gathered enough support in key areas that they basically strike to dissolve the provisional government and um, the civilian ministers under Kerensky and this occurs right around the uh, October of 1917 which will be now be called the uh, October Revolution. So it's basically a power grab with the Bolsheviks and Lenin who has come back from uh, his self-imposed exile in Finland and basically overthrows the provisional government. And most of them was either were jailed or other are jailed or are forced to leave the Russian Empire, including Alexander Kerensky. So the, uh, the very short, six-month um, democratic government, so to speak, in Russia ends in October of 1917. And the Bolsheviks under Lenin are able to uh, gather power and take over the government. And Lenin, for all his uh, slogan to end the war has been, Peace, land, and bread, promising ends the fighting. For support, he, he he's the, him, and the Bolsheviks. I, I wouldn't necessarily say they played it smarter than their opponents, but they're a little more shrewder, a little more politically calculating, and uh, they did have help with some of the uh, political ineptness of the uh, provisional government, which uh, I think, in hindsight, probably should have jailed the Bolsheviks immediately and just got and gotten rid of them when the first signs of uh, dissent. Sold in them, but they didn't, and that is one of the reasons why the government fell as it did in 1917. So Lenin starts to open up uh, peace feelers, a uh, peace feelers with the uh, central powers, primarily the uh, Imperial Germany at this point, which uh, has not sat idle these last few months, have uh, now increased their attacks and offensives into Russian, the uh, Russian heartland, and. Uh, this is the point where I believe the morale in the Russian army really starts to uh, dissolve. There's been a lot of desertions through Bolshevik agitators by saying, you know, don't fight for the imperialists and to go home to your family. So, uh, basically, the front starts to collapse. This is the po- this is the point where the front starts to collapse, and the Germans increase pressure on the new Bolshevik Soviet government in order to instill their their peace their peace deal they want with the Russians, and it's not exactly a uh, you know peace without annexation or victory which i believe is lenin hoped would occur but um lenin is able to lenin and, and his uh big follower Trat, leon trotsky are able to come to an agreement with the germans with the uh tre- and the central powers with the treaty of brest litovsk which is an area in i believe nowadays belarusia now and the uh Basically, German, Germany gets the better deal of this peace treaty, which occurs on March 3rd, 1918. And uh, basically, Germany takes all of the land of the western border of the Tsarist Empire, including the Ukraine, the Crimea, and parts of the northern carcasses. Uh, especially the Ukraine, there are... The Ukraine was the uh, breadbasket of the Russian Empire. A lot of the food supply, a lot of the, in, the natural resources that fueled the Russian... the the Russian industrial machine, are located in the Ukraine. So losing the Ukraine is a serious blow to whatever regime comes after the Tsarist Empire, which will be the Soviet Union. And it leads to the quote-unquote independence of the Ukraine, Georgia, Finland, although the the German forces immediately occupy that area to start exploiting those resources for the German war machine, which at this point is... uh, I wouldn't say on its last legs, but it is approaching there. They've had a blockade from the British Navy for the last two years that have really stretched the German industry and the civilian front to its limits. And they're also sustaining many casualties in the Western front, which is uh modern days, Belgium and France, which I uh, mentioned briefly, but you know, they, they've been fighting a war on two fronts for the last three years. So no one in the Soviet government is really happy with this treaty, Lenin particularly is furious because basically it um, brings whatever is left of Russia down to a third-rate power without all these uh, territories and uh, annexations. But uh, Lenin, real- Lenin and Trotsky realize that they have no choice. They have ex- they don't have the military capacity to withstand the German invasion, so they cede to this treaty, which entails losing a third of Russia's population at the time, about 55 million people. A lot of the resources, including coal and iron, and about uh, and uh, about eleven to eleven million square miles of territory. So, for right now, Russia is out of the war and out of like the the world stage at, at this point. And I won't go too many details, but this will lead to a civil war against the uh, Bolshevik regime, which we'll call the the, the Reds, which you know. The, the Red Arm, the, the Red Army, the future, uh, the future government of the Soviet Union, and you'll pit them against the remnants of, um, I guess, like the the czarist, czarist uh, regime, which we'll call the Whites. The Red versus Whites. That leads to the Russian Civil War, which won't conclude until about 19- 1920. That'll cause like another 15 to 20 million casualties for the uh, Russian, whatever's left of the Russian Empire. And it will also lead to the uh, murder of the Tsar Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas II, and his entire uh, immediate family in uh, Ekaterinburg in, believe, uh, European Siberia in June of summer of in the summer of nineteen eighteen. But uh, that is jumping ahead because I'm, I'm just talking about the Russian uh, Revolution. So that is the end of the Tsarist Empire, Tsarist. Uh, Romanov dynasty and also of the short-lived, short, short short term provisional government, and uh, basically the Bolshevik Party and the uh, which created the Soviet Union. I Believe in 1922 will remain in power until the collapse of the USSR, the so- Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, in uh, 1991. Which we're jumping ahead of the game, and that is not the uh, objective of this podcast. So, uh, I guess I'll take a few minutes to, uh, I'll just, like, I think the general question is, could all this have been avoided? And, uh, I'm not, yes and no. Yes in the fact that, um, if Russia hadn't gotten involved in the First World War, then the external internal pressures on the Tsarist regime wouldn't have happened. But, it would have led to a loss of face with the, uh, with with the Russian Empire with the rest of the world. As I told you before, the Russians had lost the 1905 war with the Japanese. And I believe if further concessions had been made from the Russians, they would have had a loss of face in the uh, world stage, especially because uh, uh, the Tsarist regime saw itself as the, um, I guess, the symbol or like protectorate of the Slavic peoples of uh, Europe and the world. And uh, if they backed down from helping a fellow Slavic nation, Serbia, in need that would have led to a loss of face with the Russian government. Uh, perhaps if Nicholas II hadn't left for the front, as he did in those uh, two years, he could have uh, had a personal touch in stilling the uh, agitation and dissent that occurred in the February of 1917. And maybe if the Russian, uh, if the provisional government, when they had taken power, had had a more hardline approach to the Bolsheviks and other agitators, it's it could be safe it could be said that they would have been able to have uh withheld their power as they as they should as they could have but again this is speculative history and uh, it's very hard to determine uh, a natural course of events uh, I don't really do a speculative history but it is fun to just think what what could have been but uh, yeah that is my uh, uh, first history podcast my special history podcast for the adventure geeks. I do want to quote the sources that I did use and mention at the end, just so people know I'm not talking, I'm I'm just not making this uh, information out of thin air. And, you know, I encourage you guys to pick up, look at these sources and pick up a copy and uh, see for yourself what, what you thought of them. So some, two of the primary, two of the secondary sources that I use, I I, I relied heavily on are uh, a Robert services, 1970, sorry, Robert service, book, uh, Tsarist Russia on Tsar, no, sorry, on uh, Nicholas II's The Last of the Tsars, which was uh, published by Penguin Books in 2017, that is one of the more modern, one of the more modern uh, books I have on the Russian Revolution, which I encourage people to read the more modern uh, modern information, since we have more access to um, Soviet and Russian archives since the fall of the Soviet Union in uh, 1991. Uh, another he- book I heavily relied on, I mentioned in this podcast, was uh, Sean McKeegan's, uh book, *The Russian Revolution*, from 19- which was created in two 2000- thousand, written in two thousand seventeen. And I've relied heavily on him for his information on the February Revolution, the Bolsheviks, the uh, October Revolution, and the uh, increasing dissent with the provisional government. And uh, again, history is, is extremely fluid; it is not set in stone. So, you know I think the the prevailing method was that the pop that the uh, population revolted against the so, Tsar the and then the uh, provisional government. I think that was the uh, general idea from uh, from the end of the revolution to modern day uh, contemporary reading. Which I like Makiyan because he kind of points out that well, according to the according to the primary sources, he he's he's seen the, since the release of the Soviet archives, it's not necessarily true, which is good, you should never have, like, a, uh, you, you should never have, like if there's new information, then you need to incorporate that into your research, which I think I, I for history, or for psychology, or a, a, any, any field of research, you should always do, don't just rely on, like, a, a source from, like, 30, 40 years ago, uh, other sources I used were Arthur Herman's, uh, 1917, Lenin, Wilson, and the birth of new world disorder, from which was written in 2017, and this talks about the idealism, like the uh, two leading figures at the time, Vladimir Lenin, and then the uh, president of the United States at the time, uh, Woodrow Wilson, which through their uh, beliefs kind of led to, well, as you can say, a new world order or a disorder, depending on your point of view. I also looked a little bit at Nicholas and Alexandria which was written by Robert Massey in 1962 to get some background information on the uh, Imperial family. It's a good story. I wouldn't necessarily conclude it now as, um, you know, the official version of events. This was written in the 60s. And again, with more access to um, archives, we can determine maybe, we can determine a new outlook on the Tsar uh, and his family, which uh, if people want, I can talk about more about the Tsar or, or Imperial Russia at, at this time. I am a my interest is in the uh, early european history in this time period so if need be i can do another special episode on this uh if people are looking at they looking for information on the russian army in world war 1 one of the most original resources on this is norman stone's book the eastern front 1914 to 1917 which was originally written in 1975 i do have a copy of that and i'm trying to get through that as quickly as possible uh so far so far it's 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 good but uh and then the the last few sources I'll mention are uh, an article from the history historychannel.com com, which is what I gathered f- for information on the treaty of Brest-Litovsk which uh, if I if I told people on this my podcast I, I I'm terrible at names so bear with me please this is updated in August 21st 2018 and it's basically where I got most of the information on the treaty and what Russia lost in the war and um the article i used for russian military casualties in the first world war came from uh britannia.com www.britannia.com which lists most of the major casualties from all the central and world po- and uh, central and allied powers and a lot of those sources came from a the 1924 us war department report about uh world war losses in the great war which 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 it was called at the time and uh, if you guys want to check out YouTube channels, they do a pretty good job. I mentioned mentioned the Russian Revolution. I recommend the uh, YouTube channel Epic History TV, which talks about the February and October revolutions, and also the uh, Great War channel, which did a week by week history of the Great War, for the last four years, and uh, now the most they're continuing into the 1919 1920 uh, wars and revolutions that occurred after the First World War. Because we all, uh, I think the myth p- people believe that. World War One was the war to end our wars and until World War Two, there was no major conflict that occurred which is not necessarily the case but I recommend you guys to check out those sources and a good source for a general history of the first world war is uh J.G. Myers a world Un- a world undone story of the great war which is written back in 2007 and uh it's very it, it he has a good writing style so you get a, a good general overview of every theater in the in the first world war and the uh, major political social economic and military dis- repercussions of that but uh yeah so that's the end of my first podcast so I'll again I'm testing the waters here seeing what works and what doesn't so if anyone has any if people have suggestions what they liked about this podcast what they didn't like what areas I can improve on by all means give me a uh, a shout-out on our History Geeks podcast. Uh, you can follow me at uh, sully1918 on my Instagram. Or you can just follow us on our Avenger Geeks uh, Instagram. Uh, Instagram Instagram account as well. And if anyone who is a big history nerd like me wants me to talk about other areas of the world at this time, uh, by all means, feel free to give me a shout-out. Uh, again, if this uh, if people are interested in this particular form of history, the Russian Revolution, I can talk more about uh, Imperial Russia or Communist Russia. Whatever you prefer, uh, Mary mention about the 1905 revolution. Get some background into that. I, I do believe that uh, you can't just you can't just go jump into one event. You usually have to uh, backtrack and figure out what led to these events and why. And uh, that that's my philosophy. But uh, yeah, again, if you guys want to learn more about um, this particular form of history, let me know. And hopefully, you uh, guys get interested and learned uh, a few different things about this. Just got a general overview about the uh Russian Revolution and again, I still think that uh we are we still live with the ghost of the past today, no matter how far in the future we future we have come but anyway, thanks for stopping by guys thanks for listening and uh, hopefully you this will pique your interest and I'll continue to do this all right guys bye for now have a great day.